If you would this morning, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19. First Kings chapter 19. When I first moved to Tennessee after living in Pennsylvania, I got a job managing an extended stay hotel just outside of, of Nashville. Actually, it's kind of within the city limits there. And uh, at this hotel, I was the assistant general manager. That's what I did. And I had to learn what we had were the four areas of the hotel. I had to know how to do everything. So I had to do a little bit of, of maintenance I had to be able to replace a toilet. I learned how to do that. There you go. And then I had to not really fix air conditioners, but learn how to send them off to get fixed. I had to learn how to clean a room. Uh, not that I clean much anymore at all, but, you know, I did have to learn how to do that. I learned the laundry area. I'm one of the few men in the world that knows how to fold a fitted sheet. There is a way to do that, and, and I do, don't do it anymore, but there is a way to do that. And I learned the front desk, and I spent most of the time there at the front desk, checking people in and out, answering the phones, transferring phone calls, and all of that. And not long after I learned how to do this, much of my job consisted of just teaching other people how to do this. I would, we'd hire, it's like a lot of those industries, there's a lot of turnover, people come and go. And so my job was to train the new people. And that was tough. Because you learn how to do it so well. You, I could do it with my eyes closed, check people in and out, do, you know, count the money, all of those things. When somebody new came, you're like, just let me do it. You know, you just, I can do it. I, and a lot of you have done jobs like this where you, you, you've gotten so good at it when there's somebody new. It's, it's, it's hard to take the time to train them. But you know you need to do it because once they learn how, then you can go on to other things. It's important to teach and to train other people. And as a pastor, you learn, when you, when you, I went to seminary and I, I studied at, uh, under guys that were pastors, and there's a particular passage of scripture that they kind of teach you. It's in Ephesians chapter 4. I think we have it up here on the screen. And it says this. He says, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and he's talking about various uh, 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 spiritual gifts. He said he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, which that's really one Position one, one Greek word there, shepherds and teachers. And then verse 12 tells us why. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And these guys would tell us young, you know, hopeful preacher guys, listen, your job is not to go to a church and do everything. There's going to be a temptation because people, some people will be like, for sure, go ahead and take care of everything. Your job is to go and help equip people to do the ministry. And, and what's interesting, and I've been to two churches now, is that actually usually ends up working the exact opposite. You show up and you don't know anything about the church. They say, just preach. That's, we'll just take care of that. And then as you learn things, and then, well, you know, a year turns into whatever. And the next thing I knew at the last church I was at, I was leading the music and mission trips and everything in the kitchen sink. And I can't sing. I can't do what Jeff did. That was very nice, Jeff. You should sing. Hey, give him a hand. That was, give a hand to everybody that sings up here and does all that stuff, because you don't want me to do it. And, uh, but it's to equip people. And really, the truth, when we, we, we look at the, the word of God and we see what Jesus told us in the Great Commission, that's what disciple making is. The gospel, we, we transmit, we tell people that Jesus Christ came. That's what this season is about. He came as a baby, grew up. He died on the cross, rose from the dead so that we put our faith and trust in him. We can have eternal life. And Jesus said to his disciples, go and teach people, make disciples. You are to be my witnesses. In essence, pass this on. 
And that's what we're all called to do, not just as a pastor with everybody. Everybody in here is to pass this on, especially generation to generation. Today, as we look at the end of chapter 19 of 1 Kings, and we look at Elijah and Elisha, and I know you're like, really, you couldn't have gotten a guy with a slightly different name than basically the same thing. But Elijah, to Elisha, we see in the Old Testament a picture of this, of the the transfer of, of God's faithful man, Elijah, to the next generation and how important it is because I don't really have to to tell you that we're kind of failing at that right now. If we look at our country and our culture and, and, and Christianity as it stands in the United States, if you go to what we call the greatest generation or the World War II generation as there's a few of those left and we look at Generation Z or whatever they call the ones after the millennials, it's not the same at all, is it? Especially when it comes to matters of faith. We are not just not reaching our culture. We're losing our own culture to this world. And so I want us to take just a few moments here this this day to look at these last verses of, of chapter 19 and look at Elijah and Elisha. And to look at all of us in here, we have people, I don't know who's the oldest one in here, and I'm not going to try and ask you to stand to figure that out, and who's the youngest And a lot of our little ones are over there, but they kind of come into play in all this. And really take stock of of what are we doing with our lives? All of us, older, younger, what are we doing? What are we investing in? And does it have eternal value? So we're going to look, beginning in verse 19 of chapter 19. I'll ask you to stand with me in the honor of God's word this morning as we read the end of this chapter and see about this investing in the next generation. It's the call of Elisha. So he departed from there, that is Elijah, he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people. And they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Lord, I ask as we look at this passage of scripture this morning, and we take time, just a few moments here, to to look at the way you have ordained this world. Lord, that for one generation to pass on the faith to the next... Lord, that we would communicate it well, and for those that are are younger, that they would listen. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. The way I'm going to look at these these final verses of this chapter is to just basically start with Elijah, the, the mentor, the older one, then look at Elisha, the younger one, the apprentice, and then at the very end, just kind of as they worked together. So we'll start first with Elijah. We've been looking at Elijah all along, and if we remember where we left him last week, he was kind of in the the, the depths of despair, wasn't he? He had, Jezebel had said, I'm going to have you killed, and so he ran away. He ran from the northern kingdom down into the southern kingdom to as far down as he could get. And there he went off by himself and basically said, I want to die. God, go ahead and take my life. I don't want to live anymore. And then we saw this, this interaction with God and Elijah with the, the wind and the earthquake and the fire and the questions. And then at the very end last week, we saw that God told Elijah what he was going to do. He gave him, you know, you're going to go and anoint 
a couple of kings. You're going to anoint Elisha to come after you, and then I've, I've, I've withheld 7,000 from, from bowing down to Baal. And that's what brought us to this verse 19. And we see, what, what does Elijah go and do? What's the first thing after he gets this information from God? And what I think is of note is he doesn't go, as far as we can tell, to anoint the kings, does he? God first said, the Lord said, and this is verse 15, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, anoint Haziel, king of Syria, and Jehu, and all that. Then he mentions Elisha, but what we get is he goes to Elisha. He doesn't go to the kings first. In fact, if we read through the rest of 1 Kings and we get into 2 Kings, we see that Elisha is really the one that deals with these kings. And in fact, what we see is with these kings is they're not necessarily the answer to the problem. Haziel, that's the first one. He says in verse 15, go and return to Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Haziel king of Syria. Well, Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 8, we, we read about where this king, what happens with this king. I think I have it on the screen, but listen what happens. This is Elisha. Elisha is, is crying in front of this Haziel. He's just a guy at this point. He's not the king. And Haziel says in verse 12, why does my Lord weep? And Elisha answered, because I know the evil you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with the sword, dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. And Haziel said, what is your servant who has put a dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth, dipped it in water, and spread it over his face till he died. And Haziel became king in his place. So Elisha looks, he says, you're going to become the king. And Haziel's he really? And then Elisha tells him, you're going to do some pretty wicked, horrible things. Terrible things. And Haziel takes it to heart, goes back, kills the king, and he becomes the king in his place. And he does all of these terrible, wicked things. He wasn't, while he was God's instrument to discipline his people, he didn't make things really better for Israel, the northern kingdom. I think Elijah, when he got news from God that, hey, this king's going to come, Haziel, then Jehu, and then I have your replacement, Elisha, another prophet. Elijah said, that's, that's, that's the key part. It's not the political power. It's not the kings. While they're important, that's not the focus. That's not how God works to change things. And I think that applies to us today is what do we, as we, we get older, what are we investing our lives in? Is it the politics of this world? Is it making sure a Republican or a Democrat or whoever it is gets elected and all of these laws get passed? Or is it the kingdom of God that we're investing in? The solution to the world's problems is not going to be who wins the next election. I'm not saying that we just, I write to my congressman and they don't answer, but sometimes they do know. We don't totally get a disavow of all of that, but we recognize, listen, that's not going to solve it. That's not going to fix all of the problems that we see. And we spend so much time there instead of saying, listen, who's the next generation of followers of Christ? Elijah went to Elisha. We see this pattern throughout Scripture. Jesus came, lived on this earth. How long was his ministry? Anybody? Three years, about three years. Why? I mean, did he really need to have three years before he died on the cross? That, that took one day. Why was it three years? What did he do during those three years? 
He called his disciples. What did they do? They followed him. He invested in them. So, And if you read John chapter 13, all the way through the end of that book, you see that really records kind of the last few hours of his life where Jesus poured into his disciples everything that he had taught them. Everything he wanted them to know to say, listen, when I ascend into heaven, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And through you, the Holy Spirit is going to, as we know now, transform this world. He invested in them. The apostle Paul did the exact same thing. Paul, the great missionary, he started so many churches, traveled all around. But what we see towards the end of his life is he invested in a particular two guys, Timothy and Titus. We have two or three books, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And most people feel these are the last books that Paul wrote, the last letters, at least that we have recorded in the New Testament. Listen to to what he says. Look at what he says to to Timothy in 2nd Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You then, my child. There's such a a tenderness when he's he's talking to a, a grown man, but he looks at Timothy and he says, listen, I'm coming to the end. You're like my child. I've invested everything in you. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul, as he was coming to the end, what he's focused on with Timothy says, listen, take everything that I've taught you, find other people that you can trust, teach them to teach others. Look at what he writes to Titus. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. He's instructing Titus. He says, Titus, teach thee, tell the women. He says, the older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may, may not be reviled. There, as he's coming to the end, he spends time teaching Timothy and Titus and others that would read these letters, listen, look to who's coming after you. He knew his life was coming to an end. He's not going to be here forever. Who's going to be there when I'm gone? So, for those of us that are older, I'm kind of right in between. I can fall into both camps, so there you go. But as we get older, how, how, do we, how do we become like an Elijah or a Paul? How do we invest? Well, first of all, you have to prepare yourself. In other words, are you knowledgeable enough about the word of God? Have you become a disciple enough that you could do this, that you can find younger people? Just because you've sat in a church. I, I met a lady once at my last church. She had been a part of this church for 50 some odd years. And she didn't know there was a book of the Bible called Esther. I don't know how you do that, but I didn't even know it was in there. How you can sit for 50 years and not not read through it to find that. But are you studying the Bible on your own? Are you you developing a regular prayer life? Do you have other people in your lives that can keep you accountable? Are you a disciple yourself? In other words, if I wanted to learn how to fly, I wouldn't go find somebody who just happened to take a lot of airplane flights. I would probably go find a pilot. Just because you sat in the back of a plane doesn't mean you're qualified to teach. I've been on a plane a whole bunch of times. So what? Do you know how to fly? Do you know what it means to be a disciple? Are you preparing yourself? The next thing to do is make sure you're investing in your own family. One of the, the truths, really, of today's world is as Christians, we're losing our own. We really are. The majority of people that grow up in church nowadays leave to not come back. 
when they turn 18 or 19 years old. It's really made me think as a pastor, just, well, I just look at where we're headed and asking, just praying, and we all should be praying this, what do we need to do differently? Are we missing something that God has taught us? Are we spending enough time investing in our kids? One of the things that we're going to do, I've been blessed as I come here to, to Cornerstone, beginning next year, we have a, a thing coming called Home Point. You'll see it'll be out there in the foyer. It has all sorts of things to help you take your faith at home with your kids and your grandkids, your great-grandkids, your nieces and nephews, and take it home and teach them what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And then beyond just our, our own family, is, is people ask me, the people come to Pastor, I'm getting older. I want to invest in the next generation. What do I do? Well, pray that God lays people on your heart. There are people that maybe they're in this church. Maybe there's young people you know at your business, where you work, or your neighbors, the people that live next door. And you say, well, what do I do? Just go talk to them. That's a start. Go introduce yourself. You see somebody in church that you see every week, and you're like, you know, they sit four or five chairs in front of me, and I don't know who they are. I'm going to teach you something this morning. You can get up out of your chair, walk over, and go, hi, my name is. There you go. That's a start. And get to know them. Once you know their name, then you can start praying for them every single day. You can just ask them about their kids or what they're, where they work or whatever and pray for that. And then sometime, if you can do this, ask them to have lunch or dinner t- sometime. They might look at you a little bit, but once they've gotten, you've gotten to know them, they'll, they'll probably say yes. I mean, I remember when I was in my 20s, anybody asked me to get something to eat? Sure. I, don't, I just met you five minutes. Sure. It takes work. But it's worth it. Elijah was at the pit, the bottom, the lowest point. What invigorated him to get back and to go back into the northern kingdom, to go back where Jezebel, as we're going to see, confront Ahab again when God gave him the direction of saying, go find Elisha. If your spiritual life as you get older gets a little dormant, a little whatever, find your Elisha, find your Timothy, find your Titus. Ladies, whatever the female version name of that is, go find them and invest in them. Now we go to Elisha, the apprentice for the younger folks in the crowd. Elijah goes and we read what he does here. He passes by him. He casts his cloak upon him. That's the end of verse 19. And then apparently he keeps walking. I guess he throws the cloak and just keeps right on going. And it says Elisha then realizes what this is. It's hard for us to, to grasp, but that was a clear indication of what Elijah was saying. Listen, uh, God's calling you, you, you to, to follow me. So Elisha chases him down. And he says, you know, hey, hey, I, I want to follow you. But first, let me, let, me, let me kiss my father and my mother and I will follow you. Now, some people have made mention of, of, of Elisha here because he says, listen, let me go take care of something. And, and there's something that Jesus says in the New Testament that makes us go, wait a minute, what, what about this? This is in Luke chapter 9. I don't have it on the screen. You can turn there, but I'll just read it to you if you don't have it in front of you. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says this in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds have air. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But Jesus said, or, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. 
Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Many people have pointed to this and said, well, wait a minute. Isn't Elisha kind of, I mean, if he's an example, he seems to be failing what Jesus said here. Not really. First, when we read the first and the third group of people Jesus is talking about, these are people that said they wanted to follow Jesus. Listen, I'm ready to go. But then when Jesus said, all right, are you turning everything, you're leaving everything behind? They said, well, first, I got to take care of some things. I'll follow you, but only on my conditions. Only, only it's, up, it's up to me. And then you have the guy in the middle, the second guy. He says, you know, let me go bury my father. Well, there's no indication that his father was even dead. His father may live for a long time. He's the one that says, I'm ready to go. But he, or Jesus calls him. He says, come and follow me. He says, oh, that's good, but I, I still. Elisha, though, he's plowing. He's just going along. And then all of a sudden he gets this call. We have no indication that he's seeking it out or anything. And he says, listen, and this is important. Let me do what the Bible teaches to honor my father and mother. Let me go say to them, hey, I've been called to something else. And then notice what he does. He takes the, the yoke of oxen and he burns them, the yokes, the, the wooden things that held the, the, the oxen together. He uses those to create a fire, kills the oxen to have a big feast. Now, what does that indicate there? He's leaving it all behind. I mean, once they're dead, they're dead. It's not like he can go, you know what? I kind of want the oxen back. Well, you ate them. He knows that what he's leaving behind. The fact that there are 12 oxen, it makes mention of that. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. Elisha was probably fairly well off, but he was willing to leave it all behind. Elijah has this interesting little thing when Elisha asks him, can I go and say goodbye to my father and mother? He says, go back again for what have I done to you? It's an interesting phrase. My wife and I have talked a lot about this over the past Weeks, actually years, we've talked about this particular thing because there's a lot of different ideas of what does he mean when he says, what have I done to you? Well, I think based on the context here, Elijah has spent three and a half years with a rough, rough go of it, hasn't he? He's been secluded there being fed by birds. He, he's been dependent on a widow each and every day, hoping there's enough food. Then he goes and faces Ahab by himself. God does a great thing. And the next day he's told he's going to die. He got to the point where he was ready to just be, just have his life taken from him. Now he's passing this on to somebody else. It's almost like, here, it's your problem now. No, but it's, what have I done to you? This is a heavy cost. One of the things is a, as a young person enters into the world of, of discipleship is to recognize the cost of, of what it takes to be a follower of Christ, especially in a culture that becomes more and more in opposition to it. No more your best life now. We see that out there. Come to Christ and everything will get a little bit better. You'll get a little. That's not what we see throughout Scripture. Come to Christ. Yes, you have eternity with, with God the Father. Yes, you have all of the blessings that God has given you. But you're going to have a difficult time here on earth. Paul says for those who want to be Christ-like, they will suffer in this world. It's to count the cost. Every night when I get ready to go to bed, I have grand thoughts of the next morning. That I'm going to get up and I'm going to exercise. I'm going to run, or maybe do some push-ups or sit-ups, and it's, I'm ready to go. Tell my wife, tomorrow's the day. And then I wake up, 
And I don't really need much of an excuse. It's just the bed's warm. I'll just stay here. I'm not too bad a shape, you know. I'm okay. It's what seemed good the night before is not so great. Discipleship can be that way. We need to be prepared that, yes, it will be a difficult journey. But it's worth it. As we look at the the Elishas that may be in the room, how God works this together is, is to say, listen, there are those that came before you that the things that you're experiencing, the difficulties in your, your, your walk, others have gone before. One of the things that I, I, I've told people before, young people in their marriage, they'll come to me and say, you know, my wife and I or my husband and I are having difficulties and struggles and what's your suggestion? Well, I said, listen, you happen to be in a church. And you know what happens to be in this church or some people in this church that have been married to the same person, some of them 50, 60 years. I bet you they would have some helpful information for you in your marriage. I'm sure they've gone through some of the exact same difficulties you've gone. Isn't it great that God has put you in a place where there is somebody that you can come? I mean, if you wanted to learn how to make a million dollars and the person next to you had made a million dollars, or do you think you might have some questions for them? Well, if you want to know as a young person, how do I walk this journey of faith? There's probably somebody within a few feet of you right now that can say, well, I've been there. Listen to him. You have Elijah and Elisha. Then I want to bring us kind of as a close down to the last sentence there. It says there in verse 21, he he kills the, the cows there. They eat them. Gives it to all the people and they ate. Then it says, then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Some versions of the Bible say ministered, but they, 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 they get together and the two of them become, have this relationship. And you know what's frustrating is we read virtually nothing about how that worked. Elijah, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, there's a few more things about him before there's this transition to Elisha. But they spent time together, they worked together, and, and, and we just see that Elisha is prepared when it's his time. And we see in the New Testament how Jesus did it, how Paul did it. And I had a pastor friend once who gave me an illustration of just this this transition, how this works from from one generation to the other. It's kind of stuck with me and it's been helpful. And he said, did you ever watch in the Olympics a relay race, you know, where they run around the track and one guy runs and when he gets to the other side, he has to hand off a baton to the next person and they run around the track. Has everybody seen this? Maybe you've participated. Okay, I see like two people know what I'm talking about. There's a track, you run around, you hand the thing off, Okay. At the Olympic level, all these people, I mean, they're the fastest people in the world, all right? They, they, so they will tell you that the, where this race is won and lost is at the transition, when you hand the baton to the next guy. And they'll say there's one of two ways that you can mess it up. The first one is the guy that's about to take off, he's about to run, he goes too quickly. He starts running too fast. When he reaches back to get the baton, the guy is, is too far behind him, and they drop it, and it's over. And you can have generationally in churches where the the next generation takes off too quickly. They go without paying homage or, or listening or hearing from the generation that came before them. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 28 says this. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. It's an interesting proverb because it's just kind of right there. There's different things around it. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. 
And it's a proverb to the, the, the younger generation to say, listen, before you go out and do something, figure out why what's being done is being done. Doesn't mean things don't ever change, but it does mean, listen, Christianity, the way thing, it, it's for 2,000 years. We've done different things. The, the, it's been passed on from generation to generation. There's a reason why things are there. Sometimes I look, as I, as I get a little bit older, and I, I realize now, when you're in your teens and your 20s, you think you've figured everything out about everything. And you realize you haven't. Ask. Figure out why we do the things we do. Why we've passed on things the way we've passed them on. Listen. And learn. But the other problem in a relay race that can also happen is the opposite. Is that the runner who is, is, is concluding his time on the track refuses to let go of the baton. And when the other guy's getting ready to take it, he hangs on too long and they, they, they drop it. And that is when in a church and they're not ready to pass on and say, listen, it's ready. I, I, I'm to the point. Hey, the next generation, I'm comfortable. I'm good. And the Apostle Paul, I told you, he wrote to Timothy and to Titus. And I already shared a little bit about what he wrote to them. A lot of people feel that Second Timothy is the final book that Paul wrote, the final letter. It's, this, he probably died not long after he wrote this. Towards the end of that, this is what he writes to Timothy. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. For I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. He's coming to the end of his life. He says, I'm, I've been poured out as a drink offering. I'm, I'm being the drink offering. Once it's, it's empty, it's gone. Like My life is just about over. I've done what I've done. And what does he do? He writes one last letter to his protege, to Timothy. Gives him some final instructions. But I think there's a sense of going, I'm at peace with the Timothys and the Tituses. It's their time now. And after Timothy and Titus came guys like Polycarp and people we don't even necessarily know about, but they were the next ones. And so on and so forth. And we got here to Cornerstone in 2018. Because people invested in the next generation and those that are coming up listened. We learned from each other. And so what I want you to do is just bow your heads for just a moment here. All of us, to a certain extent, are a little bit of Elijah and a little bit of Elisha. Obviously, you know where you are in life to know which one you're more of. You know, if you're in your 80s, you're probably a little more Elijah than you are Elisha. If you're in your teens, probably the other way around. But I want you to just spend just a moment before we kind of wrap up the service here and just, what are you investing in? This is the Christmas season. We're spending a lot of money on all sorts of stuff. But as you look at your life as a whole, what are you pouring it into? Is it kingdom focused? And if you're in the Elisha category, what, is your, what are your goals? What are you, you looking for in life? You know, a job, getting married, having kids, all these things. But spiritually, you're saying, listen, I want to become a disciple. I want to learn. I want to, to become an Elijah and so it's just to spend a few moments asking yourself those questions. What am I investing my life in? What am I making my life into? 
Does it fit what Jesus did with his disciples, what Paul did with Timothy and Titus, what Elijah did with Elisha? In a moment, I'm going to pray and then dismiss this. And I want you to just kind of think of that this week as you go.